In its latest session, the Washington State Legislature passed a low-carbon fuel standard as well as a carbon tax, putting the state at the front of the pack for decarbonization. To understand how that happened, we chatted with Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, leader of the House Energy and Environment Committee and a climate champion for the state over the past 10 years. Listen. Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. Today we have with us Representative Joe Fitzgibbon. Joe was elected to represent the 34th District in Washington State in 2010. He chairs the House Environment and Energy Committee and sits on a number of other important committees in the state. Um, Representative Fitzgibbon has long been an advocate to address climate issues and work on energy legislation. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Representative Fitzgibbon. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks for having me. Can you briefly share a little bit about your background? What led you into the role that you currently hold now? My passion around environmental issues and around fighting climate change in particular is what uh, drew me to politics in the first place. And so um, I have been in the legislature um, for 11 years. And before I was elected, I was a staffer uh, for my predecessor in the House. Um, and and uh, she moved on to run for the state Senate. Um, I saw that as an opportunity to put to use uh, my uh, experience and passion around these issues. And to um, I was able to uh, you know, at the time I was elected in 2010, there was not a whole lot of energy in the Washington State Legislature at that time around climate issues, uh, and so there was the space for me to carve out a role as um, as as one of the people who really prioritized that issue. And uh, I've I've uh, been happy doing that as committee chair for the last eight years, and uh, in the last three years in particular, when we've seen some real headway on greenhouse gas reduction in Washington State, um, a, a lot of that groundwork laid in those early years has paid off. Well, we're going to get into the details of, of recent sessions and all of the work that you've been uh, spearheading. Can you tell us briefly about the 34th sure. district? Sure. Uh, yeah, 34th district is uh, West Seattle, most of the city of Burien, uh, White Center, an unincorporated neighborhood between Burien and Seattle, uh, and Vashon Island, a rural island um, outside of Seattle. Uh, about 150,000 constituents. Um, you know, mostly urban district, but you know an interesting split of urban, rural, and suburban. Um, a district with a lot of natural beauty, a lot of Puget Sound shoreline, and uh, a lot of really um, strong feeling around the importance of protecting the quality of our environment for current and future generations. Great. Well, today is Thursday, May 27th. Um, it's amazing to think back on what's happened in the last handful of weeks, let alone 15 months. Um, ever since we've launched our podcast, I start with this question, how are you doing? How are your colleagues in the legislature doing? Uh, how are you making it through all, all these, you know, interesting times we're in? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. We, we're about a month out from the end of our legislative session, and it was truly a session like no other, um, in part because we were all remote. Um, all of our committee work and all of our House floor action and all of our caucus meetings and so forth were all over Zoom or over Microsoft Teams. And that was just a totally different experience, required a lot of different muscles than we're used to using uh, during our, our legislative sessions. Um, but it was also a really uh, productive session on a lot of fronts, 
uh, including climate. And we have passed some really breakthrough laws on climate, in particular, uh, passing the nation's second economy-wide cap-and-trade program after California, um, passing a low-carbon fuel standard, completing the uh, link between from British Columbia down through California of jurisdictions on the West Coast, seeking to decarbonize our transportation fuels. Uh, and those two laws in particular, um, I think, constitute certainly the most productive session we've ever had on the climate front. Um, it was also pretty grueling. And so, you know, a month out, I feel like I finally uh, caught my breath a little bit and able to look back with some some hindsight on, on everything that we achieved this session. But um, I think my colleagues are doing well. I know we're all really ready to get back into session. I know we're all, you know, excited that with, that with vaccinations uh, going the way they are, we are uh, finally approaching that light at the end of the tunnel and, uh, and fully reopening our state. And uh, But I think we're all looking forward to seeing each other in person um, next session, if not sooner. Uh, yeah, I've seen the announcements from, from the governor on, on the interest to really kind of move the state in the right direction as things open up. So can you share a bit about the work that you focused on over the years in the legislature? Um, I know prior to this session, there's been a number of, of things that you've helped accomplish, but what's been kind of at the center of what you've you know wanted to dedicate your time to and get get accomplished there in Washington. Yeah, um, well, the biggest focus of my work has been has been fighting climate change, um, but of course that happens on a, a lot of different fronts. Um, I spent probably most of the, the my early years in the legislature with a really heavy focus on land use, um, on um, amending and improving Washington's land use laws to to make sure that they were supportive of things like transit oriented development and uh, addressing the housing shortage. Um, and that continues to be something I'm really interested in, although, you know, in the last few years, my work has really broadened to encompass um, more in the energy space uh, with probably the biggest focus on transportation fuels and the low carbon fuel standard bill. But also, uh, you know, we passed um, a great 100 percent clean electricity law in the 2019 session, um, which I think really foundational for all of our climate work um, and and I think helped pave the way for the the breakthroughs we had this session um, on, on cap and trade um, so uh, really for since the 2019 session the last three sessions we've had um, big win after big win on climate in 2019 we had the the hundred percent clean electricity law we had a first in the nation building performance standard for large commercial buildings over 50,000 square feet. Uh, we passed a hydrofluorocarbon phase down. That was a bill that I sponsored to uh, transition us away from um, super powerful greenhouse gases used primarily in refrigeration and in, in as a foam blowing agent, essentially replicating the EPA uh, rule that, uh, that was not in effect at the time, uh, but which now is likely to be uh, brought back into effect nationwide, thanks to the action of states like Washington. Um, so that was a big year. In 2020, we adopted California's zero emission vehicle standards and uh, updated our state's greenhouse gas uh, reduction targets to be uh, the most ambitious in the nation, including putting us on a, the goal being to get us to net zero by 2050. Uh, and then that law, the Stronger Goals, formed the um, the the basis for the the cap and invest bill that we that we passed this year um, and with those really aggressive greenhouse gas reduction targets uh, directing that the allowance budgets under the cap and trade program will decline very steeply in order to 
to keep us on track to net zero by 2050, as well as, like I mentioned before, finally passing our state's low carbon fuel standard. That law um, requires a gradual reduction in the greenhouse gas intensity of transportation of on-road transportation fuels. Uh, the law that we ultimately passed will call for a um, 10% reduction in the greenhouse gas intensity of those fuels by 2031 and a 20% reduction by 2038. I am hoping that we can accelerate that timeline in the years to come, but those are the dates that we were able to get agreement on this year. So um, that really constitutes, I think, the, the greatest part of our book of business on uh, the climate front in, uh, in, in, in recent years, which I think really does put us kind of at the front of the pack among the 50 states, uh, right up there with California in terms of the ambition of our climate policies. Yeah, absolutely does. It, can we loop back a little bit on CETA, so the Clean Energy Transformation Act? As you mentioned, that was a major piece of legislation in 2019 and is moving kind of into the you know compliance phases. It's a, it's a significant piece of legislation that um, would require full decarbonization, uh, 100% clean energy in the state. Uh, where is that at at this juncture? How does it interface with some of the other elements of the legislation that have been put in place after most of the work in implementing the clean electricity law, CETA, is uh, there's still rulemaking underway at the Department of Commerce, the Department of Ecology, the Utilities and Transportation Commission. So, you know, many of the administrative details are still being worked through by the by the state agencies tasked with implementing those laws. But the fundamentals of it are 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 known by our utility community, and our uh, I think all of our electric utilities are adapting their decision making um, accordingly. I just saw. Uh, earlier this week, an announcement from Puget Sound Energy that they had um, inked a deal with, I believe it was Douglas County Public Utility District to um, uh, to buy a you know, significant amount of clean hydropower from Douglas PUD. Certainly our utilities, particularly our, our investor-owned utilities, which are those who had the, the most uh, fossils in their generation mix um, to begin with, um, are pretty aggressively looking to uh, you know how, how they can decarbonize their fuel mix. And uh, that's super encouraging. I think we know there's a real need to grow both renewable generation and transmission for renewables. I think that's the next big uh, challenge for us to overcome in um, achieving the really ambitious timeline set out in CETA is to make sure that we have the infrastructure to bring all those clean electrons from whether it's Eastern Washington or Montana or Wyoming or uh, or you know wherever they're being generated to the the load centers in our state um, west of the Cascades, um, I know that we we have a lot of work to do to make sure the transmission can be cited, and I think that's something that um, you're going to see the legislature focus on um, in the in the years to come. Well, the governor there, uh, Governor Inslee, in his campaign last year to to run for president, you know, was very much a, a candidate running on a climate platform, and a, and we've seen that that has impacted some of the incoming administration priorities, which hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about a little bit later on. But I, but I also noticed that the governor released some strategies specific to Washington State, and they they called you know for. Uh, you know, investments to address climate. How did the strategies and the leadership of the governor, how does that impact the the priorities that the legislature mm-hmm. is thinking about? Yeah, it, it, it helps in some ways. Uh, you know, there's always a little bit of friction between any governor and any legislature. And so sometimes that complicates the legislative dynamic a little bit when people who are frustrated, legislators who are frustrated at the governor about something unrelated, um, you know, s- sometimes that impacts how they approach the climate issues. But we have overcome that. One thing that's super helpful is certainly the governor's um, 
focus on climate has has elevated the the attention to the issue um, throughout you know throughout the legislature right it's 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 not a back burner issue everybody knows that this is something that we're going to spend a lot of focused energy on another thing that really helps there is just having uh, all of the executive branch of state government um, oriented towards this issue in a way that means that when we need an answer from the department of ecology about uh, you know how a particular regulation might work or what the current uh, emissions footprint of a specific sector is or you know how is this going to be implemented through rule whether that's ecology or commerce or any of the state agencies that are involved uh, you know we get really accurate answers really fast they they're all mobilized towards making sure that uh, the climate agenda can be successful in the legislature whether it's a bill proposed by the governor or not they know that this is a top priority for the governor and uh, that it's a priority for the for the people of the state. So that really helps. Uh, you know, one thing that one thing that has guided some of our sector specific work is the the state energy strategy, which a lot of agencies had input on and a lot of stakeholders had input on and was finalized in 2020. Uh, you know, for example, that's uh, laying out the the pathway to for example, decarbonizing the residential building sector. For above all the sectors in Washington that have major emissions, residential buildings are one that have a lot fewer uh, sector-specific policies in place. So as we looked at, okay, where are there gaps in uh, Washington's emissions portfolio? Where do we not have policies in place yet? That state energy strategy really helps um, identify what are what are the next steps for you know for that sector. So uh, jumping back into this last legislative session, you mentioned the two heavy lifts with the low carbon fuel standard and the in the carbon um, cap and invest uh, legislation. The carbon tax uh, passed by by one vote in the Senate. So how did this go? How were you able to muster the support to move those forward in the state? What are some ideas and lessons and experiences that you can share with how, how that had how that progressed? Yeah, I mean, I, one thing that really was impactful is just We've had a lot of efforts on carbon pricing over the years in Washington that have um, fallen short. And as frustrating as that was over the years, um, clearly we learned lessons from each of those failures that helped inform our ultimate success. Um, all the way back to 2009, when Governor Gregoire um, had her first cap and trade bill through 2015, when Governor Inslee had his bill, which I sponsored and of course, came up short, as well as the the ballot initiatives in 2016 and 2018. Really, every year since 2015, there's been some kind of carbon pricing push in our state, and we've learned we knew sort of what the uh, you know what the rocks hiding under the surface were that we had to avoid running aground on. Whether that's the energy intense trade exposed manufacturers, whether that was uh, the decision making around how uh, the money generated by the program would be spent the governance decisions associated therein, uh, the the importance of environmental justice and making sure that, that there was low risk of exacerbating environmental health disparities. We knew that those were the big questions that had to be answered. And so that meant that we could kind of front load our work on trying to get those questions answered as much as possible so that um, so we didn't run out of time. You know, it's never going to be easy to pass a policy this big, but I think the fact that we had the attention to you know, those those big issues early on informed by our experience in past years made a big difference. You know, it made a big difference that, that some key businesses that had either been opposed or had sat out previous fights around this issue like BP, like Puget Sound Energy. So, you know, our state's largest oil refiner and our state's largest electric utility, um, you know, as well as other utilities, Avista, um, certainly Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, you know, played played roles in helping us get this right. You know, I think in the past, uh, a lot of the carbon pricing fights have really been seen as 
you know, a pitched battle between business and environmentalists. And this one didn't feel that way. And there was, you know, in fact, there was some a spectrum of views even within the environmental community. Some of the um, really hardcore environmental justice organizations were not supportive of the bill. Um, I think that we addressed, at least to the satisfaction of, of the legislature, a lot of the concerns that they raised, but that didn't mean that those organizations themselves got to yes. And then, of course, we had other organizations like Climate Solutions or the Washington Environmental Council that were supportive. So it, it felt like just not the knockdown drag out fight between two diametrically opposed camps uh, that sometimes this issue can devolve into. Um, and so, you know, I think credit goes to um, those who came to the table looking to find a way to get, you know, get a path to yes. Is there any other lessons that you had from this legislative session associated to the carbon tax passage or the low carbon fuel standards or other issues around energy and climate that that stand out for you? Um, one thing that was relatively new this year, which is positive, I don't know that this was determinative, but it really helped having businesses that are looking to clean up their fleets, businesses that operate large fleets. And so Amazon is a good example of this, obviously a major player in Washington. Um, Amazon uh, came out in support of the clean fuel standard because they want to uh, transition their delivery fleet to to cleaner fuels, whether it's electricity or biofuels, and they saw how this policy could help them with that transition. So we really try to talk about those success stories, talk about the wins for Washington's economy. Of um, you know, we don't have fossil fuel reserves in Washington. Uh, we don't have fossil fuel extraction. I guess at one point in time we did, but we don't extract fossil fuels here anymore. So anytime we transition energy that we're currently deriving from a fossil resource to a cleaner resource, there's at least some opportunity to, to source that in state, whether that's uh, canola from the canola fields in Grant County or whether that's dairy gas from Yakima County or Whatcom County or whether that's the actual biofuel refinery um, out uh operated by the Renewable Energy Group in, in Hoquiam, um, we have a lot of more and more success stories to point towards of how we're diversifying Washington's energy mix is not just good for the climate, but it's also good uh, for rural communities that need more job growth, as well as uh, how it's positive for urban communities that experience disproportionate um, health impacts from criteria air pollutants and the associated reduction in those criteria pollutants um, accruing from uh, less use of petroleum-based fuels. So, you know, it's not going to be enough to just talk about the climate winds. That's That doesn't reach enough of the audience, whether the audience is the public or the audience is legislators. And so it really helps to build out that triple bottom line, whatever we're talking about. You know, in the, in the Cap and Invest Bill, talk, being able to talk about the investments in, uh, for example, in transit or in uh, climate resiliency. And there's significant resources booked in that bill for the relocation of tribal villages on the outer coast that are experiencing uh, increased um, erosion and flood risks um, as, as sea levels rise. Uh, that is really impactful too. And that's something that I, I think is, is absolutely critical to the success of a carbon pricing bill is being able to, to show a really coherent narrative about how communities across the state are going to benefit. Um, and it's not benefit in ways beyond uh, greenhouse gas mitigation itself. So I know the last three years, as you had mentioned in the, in the opening, have been very active in a lot of wins in the legislature. Is there anything else that you'd like to see the state tackle around energy transition or climate through mm -hmm. the legislature or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, we've. I, I think one thing that I'd really like to see us make more headway on next year is, is on the land use side. Um, we had a, a bill that passed the House but stalled in the Senate to incorporate 
uh, both greenhouse gas reduction and climate resiliency into local governments required uh, comprehensive plans under our state's growth management act i think it's really important that we get that done because we know about the feedback loop that land use and climate decisions have with one another um, and we know how important it's going to be for communities to to be ready for a change in climate whether that's in- increased wildfire risk or increased flood risk depending on where in the state you are so i think that the um, the land use climate connection is something that we really need to um, to get addressed in policy um, and then one other that i mentioned earlier but residential buildings we um, we have a great first in the nation law on commercial buildings requiring that building performance um, be measured and improved over time and we don't have anything in the residential space heating and water heating space and And uh, while there's a lot of great technologies um, that are coming more to maturity around heat pumps for both, you know, for both space heating and water heating and and other technologies as well, um, I think we need to figure out how to accelerate that deployment uh, because we don't have the we don't have a policy in place to put space and water heating in residential buildings um, on a uh, trajectory to net zero yet. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. Well, maybe I can pivot us over a little bit. You had just mentioned resiliency. Between the fires this last fall in Washington and across the West, the hot weather in California and beyond, the cold weather you know that got a lot of headlines in Texas but came through the Northwest first, the, you know, the pipeline cyber attack, the, the topic of grid reliability and resiliency is just top of mind to many. What is Washington state doing to be ready for these increasingly impactful events? And, and what are some of the things that you think, whether it's the legislature or others in the state can just be more proactive to get ready for yeah. these? Well, a couple of things that we've, um, certainly the dollars generated by uh, the cap and invest bill that we just passed are going to be important for helping communities adapt to a changing climate, whether it's those those native communities on the outer coast that I uh, that I mentioned that the legislature intends to allocate $50 million per biennium for the relocation of those villages. Of course, that's just one aspect of climate resiliency. Um, having the dollars available for local government planning more broadly, um, is that's one of the eligible uses of the dollars generated by the cap and invest bill. Um, I do think that that, uh, you know, we're going to see, we're going to need to see more investments in restoring floodplains and restoring natural shorelines uh, to states where they can be more resilient and, and certainly to uh, reducing wildfire risk. And this is particularly true in eastern Washington, although increasingly it's true in western Washington as well, that uh, climate resiliency often means avoidance of severe wildfire risk. And so that Every year that goes by, as we see climate impacts um, accelerating, that becomes more uh, of a clear priority for the legislature. But I do think that we need to sort of close the loop by not just providing the resources for local governments to to do that kind of planning, but also requiring it um, because uh, we can't afford to have communities that aren't taking uh, the the impacts of climate change seriously as um, as we see those accelerate. And so that uh, I think really means passing that law next year to incorporate climate impacts, climate resiliency, and greenhouse gas mitigation into local land use plans. Those are probably our big next steps on the resiliency front. Great. Maybe I can ask you a question or two at the federal level before we wrap up. So much of the discussion at the White House is focused on kind of high-level climate objectives, whether it was the summit or the recent uh, American Jobs Plan that's really uh, outlining the infrastructure investments, uh, potentially in the trillions of dollars across the country. 
Um, do you see these things impacting the work at the ground level at states and local jurisdictions yet? And, um, you know, in addition to that, where do you see that the work of the state can kind of shine an example of what, you know, could yeah. be successful at the federal level? Yeah, I mean, so one thing the federal government can do that we can't do at the state level is is, is deficit spend. And so the, the amount of dollars that the federal government can make available to states or other entities for uh, accelerating the clean energy transition is just like not even remotely comparable to what we can do at the state level. So I really am excited to see uh, you know the president's infrastructure plan, including the kind of investments in 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 transforming the electrical grid, or in uh, improving uh, decarbonizing transportation with through electrification, or through VMT reduction and transit, and otherwise. There's a lot of really um, incredibly impactful ideas that that they just have the dollars for that we will never be able to have the dollars at that magnitude at the state level. You know, I think certainly the president util utilizing the full regulatory powers of the EPA as they ought to be used. I mean, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing that with, um, you know, a, a pivot back towards stronger uh, vehicle emission standards, um, you know, emission standards for, for power plants otherwise. But, but there's also opportunities for states to show both other states and the federal government that things can be done. And I, a couple examples I see of that, you know, California's, um, Clean car standards. Uh, California's, you know, unique position under the Federal Clean Air Act to adopt clean car standards and showing that those can be done. They can be done economically. They can be done safely, and then and then expanded nationwide is a great example of state action. A little bit unique to California. Um, I also look at uh, Washington. Our adoption of the building performance standard for large commercial buildings two years ago. Um, uh, again, you know, great landmark, first in the nation thing. Uh, the uh, Department of Energy just announced, I think, last week that uh, that the federal government is going to adopt a building performance standard for all federal buildings in the country, um, which is great. You know, that's not quite as impactful as if Congress were to adopt it for all build all commercial buildings. But having that in place for federal buildings is going to save taxpayers money. Is going to reduce greenhouse gas output um, nationwide, and that's an example where Washington, you know, showed that that policy worked, that that policy could be done and could be scaled up. So I think that uh, there's great things that we can teach the federal government and then there's ways that the federal government can provide us the tools that we need to go further yeah well jobs are such a huge priority for the biden administration you know there's a few little companies up there amazon and microsoft mm -hmm. of course boeing and many others that are there in the ecosystem in washington state um what kind of job impacts do you see the the climate and energy efforts have there and 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 how is the you know the job front you know coming out of the the COVID activity right now Washington's economy is about as strong as any in the nation. Um, uh, that said, it's a pretty uneven economy. We have robust job growth in the Seattle area. Um, of course, the flip side of that is really you know overheated housing prices. But then, in a lot of parts of the state, particularly in rural parts of the state, you know, in Grays Harbor County, in Cowlitz County, you know, in many parts of eastern Washington. Uh, they they don't have the same access to opportunity, and that's where we really do need to look towards things like the natural resource economies and what role they can play in our transition to cleaner energy. And that's where I think uh, growth in sectors like biofuels, 
um, are going to be um, a really big contributor to how we turn things around in places like Grays Harbor County or Yakima County. Um, so, but that's going to require some policy attention by state government. I think the low carbon fuel standard is a big step in that direction, but we need to make sure that it's that we're following through on those intentions with, uh, you know, with the with. Uh, attention to things like our land use laws and and permitting and siting reform, so that um, ambitious projects to build, you know, to transform our energy economy don't um, get hamstrung in the permitting process, um, or you know, or the issues raised in the permitting process can be resolved and not just used to kill projects. That's something that um, that I know uh, we're going to need to address in order to, um, to to even out some of the the disparities in our uh, current Washington economy. Um, you know, it's undeniable based on your time with us today that Washington's a leading state in, in addressing climate and, and putting forward, you know, aggressive and impactful energy legislation. What do you think other states can learn from from what you guys have been putting in place and experiencing? And, and what would you uh, like to see Washington learn by what yeah. you're noticing from some other states? I think one of the things that we shown with, uh, particularly with our cap and trade bill this year, is that a lot of the significant unmet needs in the infrastructure space, which are I know are not unique to Washington. I know all fifty states have significant infrastructure needs, but a really good way to uh, to meet some of those needs is through carbon pricing, um, and that that if we're going to invest in 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 better transportation infrastructure, better energy infrastructure, uh, better community resilience and local government um, resources that, that carbon pricing is, is a really effective strategy for uh, for meeting those needs but you know it's going to take a lot of work and I you know knowing how many years it took Washington to get this done I'd really encourage other states to not get discouraged but to you know, to learn from every time that there's a, there's an effort that doesn't make it over the finish line to inform uh, you know inform what they come back with um, the next time I would definitely uh, invite legislators from other states to, to reach out and say, you know, what what are the things that were uh, that, that you would suggest to a state that's just getting started on the journey towards a safe climate and to strong climate policy? We need to continue this exchange of ideas if we're going to make progress across all 50 states. You know, I was on a um, on a panel with a state senator from Texas a few weeks ago who passed a law on hydrofluorocarbons that was um, inspired in part by work that our state building code council did in 2019. And so, you know, Texas not perceived as a real frontline leader in the climate fight historically, um, but passed passing a authorization for safer refrigerants to be used ahead of most other states. I think that there's lessons for all 50 states here, and, um, and it, it, it just involves um, a lot of intentional conversations across state lines to see what we can learn from each other. Well, Representative Fitzgibbon, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your leadership on these important issues. Uh, congratulations on such a successful session, and we look forward to partnering with you and hearing about uh, everything that continues forward in the great state of Washington. Absolutely. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks so much for the, for the chat today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.